From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and Sirius XM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. My guest today is Bill Taylor, who is the founder and founding editor of Fast Company, the game-changing magazine that's won just about every award a magazine can win since it started in the mid-90s. Since founding Fast Company, Bill has written a number of books on leadership and change. His newest is Simply Brilliant. How great organizations do ordinary things in extraordinary ways. And in our conversation, we dive deep into this wonderfully practical book and try to draw connections to life beyond work. Bill describes with some vivid examples the essential qualities of innovative companies in slow-moving industries. We go in-depth on Lincoln Electric and PAL's Sudden Service, two fascinating organizations. As a special treat, Bill, who is a fellow Springsteen fanatic, uh, and I, we, we talk at the end of the conversation about how the boss, Bruce Springsteen, personifies the traits of successful managers. All right, here is my conversation with Bill Taylor. Bill, welcome to Work and Life. It's great to be here, Stu. Uh, looking forward to it. I have to say I'm a big fan of your work. Just read just about everything you've uh, written over the years, and I've learned uh, a ton from all of your thinking, so it's a real pleasure for me to be with you. Oh, that's so kind of you, Bill. Um, and congratulations on uh, another great book, Simply Brilliant. Um, so many things I want to ask you about it. Uh, let's just dive right in here uh, and... Uh, if you could say how you got to this book, what what led you to want to produce this work? Well, I, it's interesting. It's kind of a sense, I think, of nostalgia as well as the concern about the future. You mentioned I'm the co-founder of Fast Company Magazine. We recently uh, celebrated, much to my amazement, the 20th anniversary of the magazine. So I you know, thought about my body of work over the last 20 years and what it all meant. And it occurred to me that I've spent just a big, big chunk of that time hanging out with, studying, trying to learn from organizations and leaders in, you know, the most digitally disruptive, the most progressive, the most kind of radical parts of the economy, mm -hmm. Silicon Valley, Austin, yeah. Texas. Yeah, fast company sort of kinds of companies, right? Yeah, exactly. And I said, you know, it occurred to me, goodness, 90, what, 90 percent of the people out there, people I care about, people I often speak to in my audience and so on, just don't live that kind of life. They're mm -hmm. in more traditional, established, slow to change, kind of, uh, no disrespect intended, kind of ordinary parts of the economy and the society. And I thought to myself, could I somehow tap into that same sense of imagination, transformation, renewal, this sense that kind of anything is possible, which is kind of as natural as, br as breathing in in Silicon Valley, but find mm -hmm. examples of that and find lessons 
uh, of that spirit in these much more traditional mainstream parts of the economy and the society. So mm-hmm. people doing extraordinary things in more ordinary fields, and it's like anything else. Mm-hmm. The minute you start looking, there's plenty of stuff to be discovered. So it's, uh, uh, to me, um, I hope very uh, provocative, very kind of challenging set of ideas, but set in very recognizable, relatable organizations, social change organizations, as well as uh, mm-hmm. traditional companies. I just love it that you've profiled and, and highlighted some of these unsung heroes doing simple things in, as you say, simply brilliant ways. Uh, so you look at auto dealerships and cleaning companies and parking garages and fast food companies and other very unglamorous kinds of uh, organizations. So tell us, uh, what did you find? How, how did you uh, come up with the ideas that, uh, that you so succinctly and clearly summarize at the very end of the book? Um, in terms of what what regular people in regular industries or sure. traditional industries are doing to accomplish the extraordinary. Sure. Well, so the the case study material, I went, I think, pretty deep inside 15 different companies and social change organizations. So very different industries, very different cultures and sensibilities, if you will. But a small number of lessons, I think, carried throughout all of them. The first one, and this is going to be no surprise to you, has to do with how individuals and organizations arrive at a a very particular definition of success. I've always found that the most successful people in companies I know are successful because they're so clear to themselves about mm-hmm. how they define success. And in this case, do you have a different definition of a success that allows you to stand for something special in the marketplace and also inspires others to stand alongside you in your journey. So as a sense, John hmm. Doerr, the great venture capitalist out in Silicon Valley, makes the distinction between entrepreneurs who are mercenaries and entrepreneurs who are missionaries. It sounds kind of judgmental. I don't think he means that. But the mercenaries mm-hmm. are the you know traditional, let's start a company, have a business plan, worry about financial statements, be as opportunist, opportunistic as we can in the deal. It's all great stuff. makes the world go around. The folks that I think achieve really outsized success, particularly in these more traditional fields, are what John calls missionaries, which is it's not just about financial statements. It's about values statements. It's not just about success. It's about success plus significance, changing your industry, changing your field somehow for the better. The mm-hmm. second thing that cuts across all these organizations, again, it's totally in your wheelhouse in terms of all the work you do, is they're very clear that they have to work as individuals and as cultures. They have to work as distinctively as they compete. If you want to be mm-hmm. special, distinctive, compelling in the marketplace, you've got to create something special, distinctive, compelling in the workplace, a set of behaviors, a set of uh, commitments that lead to things that are not just efficient, but things that are memorable, both peer-to-peer in terms of how you treat each other, mm-hmm. and then, of course, the relationship between the organization and customers. And finally, and this may be, I think, in this day and age, the most important insight, there is a spirit in all these people and all these organizations that say they simply refuse to allow what they know to limit what they can Imagine in the book, I talk about the the paradox of expertise, which is 
the better you are at something, the longer you've been doing it, the higher you rise inside your company, oftentimes that makes it more difficult to open your eyes mm-hmm. to new ways of solving old problems, new strategies for sure. cracking. Success breeds markets. complacency. Exactly. Every, you know, you let what, and so or to can. me, the spirit that cuts across all these folks is they're always asking themselves, am I learning as fast as the world is changing? So those mm-hmm. are three, I think, simple but kind of powerful lessons that really do cut across all these different companies, all these different organizations. And they're, they are so attuned to the moment. So you really have uh, unearthed some, I think, powerful and deeply resonant ideas. The, the prologue, uh, the, the the quote that leads it, the possible is immense. Uh, what is that meant to convey about your your well, starting so is, point and I'm, your I'm raison d'etre? That. That's a great thing. So this is uh, my last research trip for the book. I went to Lincoln Electric, which is this just classic American heartland manufacturer based in Cleveland, Ohio. It's been around since 1895. Fantastically competitive, muscular manufacture of arc welding equipment and cutting tools, stuff that is used in, in other factories on construction sites. And they're, you know, $3 billion a year business, 10,000 people. They sell big into China. They're you know, just mm-hmm. American manufacturing at its best. What's we studied them in graduate this? school 35 years ago. They're, they're an important case for us to, to learn about back when I was a kid. But please tell yeah, us. what. It, you know that, that the, the Lincoln Electric case is literally the best-selling Harvard Business School case study in history. And yet nobody's, you know, outside of your world and my world has ever heard of this company. But to me what's amazing about it is this uh, company has got a very powerful manufacturing and competitive system because it's built such a unique social system. So, for example, back Mm -hmm. in 1948, James Lincoln, the brother of the founder, but James Lincoln is kind of the founding father of this social system, promised his employees... I will never lay off a single employee based on gyrations or downturns in the economy. People can get fired for cause, mm-hmm. but we will never have a layoff of the sort you read about every day on the front page of the Wall Street, Wall Street Journal. Well, fast forward to today, that promise has held true since Amazing. 1948. And so in the Great Recession back in 2008, 2009, they lost 30% of their business overnight. They didn't lay off a single. They redeployed people. They trained people up. They had them doing upkeep, but nobody lost their job. Nobody wins unless everybody wins. Well, there right, you go, Bill? Baby, uh, <laughs> that's an insider quote that only you and I and a few other Bruce Springsteen fans will understand. Yeah, but you make it quite prominently uh, in one of your concluding chapters. Uh, the sort of uh, well, the title that that helps everyone understand what you're getting at well, yeah, uh, so because, clearly. Yeah, I mean, I do think one of the things that's sort of gnawing at all of us, and particularly someone like you, who's who's, the, you talk about harmony and so on. The thing that gnaws at so many of us is this: whether we intended to or not, we've created this kind of winner-take-all society and winner-take-all ethos in the country. And I think a lot of it really is tied pretty closely to the the logic of the innovation economy, where s- small groups of people, you know, reap these outsized rewards and so on. And to me, the cha- I mean. For this point of view, this worldview to be sustainable, we simply have to figure out how do we give more and more people a seat at the table and a piece of the action? How do we make sure that all this tremendous wealth that we're creating gets shared with people who have a hand in creating it? And that takes us right back to Lincoln Electric, where every year 
they take 32 cents out of every pre-tax dollar of profit, put it into a big pool, and then distribute it among frontline manufacturing mm-hmm. workers, frontline office workers. But they'll just give everybody an equal share. There's this really intense methodology where people have individual performance metrics, team performance metrics. They're rated by their peers. And so if you're a superstar individual performer, your share of that bonus pool is, is much larger than a kind of more mediocre performer. Uh-huh. So there's uh, a performance contingent con- uh, connection there. In terms so of- it's, both, it's both shared fate and individual accountability, which creates both a sense of fairness and a mm-hmm. sense of, you know, if you really want to go the extra mile, there's a reward for doing it. So if you're a frontline manufacturing mm-hmm. worker and you're really great, you can, your annual bonus could be 70 or 80 percent of mm-hmm. your base salary, which is, you know, good, great for tuition, make a down sure. payment on a house or whatever. And so anyway. So is this what you mean by personal accountability and collective identity? Exactly. I mean, I, what I have found in all of the organizations I write about is there is this, this notion of identity. What does it mean to be a member of this organization? When, when we go to work, hmm. what are we signing up to be a part of? And without getting too whimsical about it, you know, can we think of ourselves as more than just a company, but as a cause, a sense of we're all in this to, together to, mm-hmm. sure, to, to have a profitable company and do well for ourselves, but to make a positive difference in our field, do something dramatically new and exciting with our customers, that sort of thing. And so at the end mm-hmm. of the visit to Lincoln Electric, I was going from the CEO's office where I did an interview to the factory, and there's a huge sign over the factory gates that uh, James Lincoln put up in 1929. And the, the sign reads, the actual is limited, the possible is immense. And I said to myself, first of all, what a spirit to be that's on inspiring. the gate of a factory. And secondly, be back in 1929, mm-hmm. I just sort of said, that's sort of the, and the people, spirit of all these organizations, really. And people really buy it. They do. It's, it's really, it is a company of, of, I mean, each of these 10,000 people, A, thinks of himself or herself as kind of their own entrepreneur because they know if they really work hard and do a great job, but not just in a me-first kind of way because they're also rated by their peers in terms of how mm-hmm. good a team made out of there. Mm-hmm. But then secondly, there is they really do understand that you know, most companies don't really work like this and the idea that you sign up for this, in this organization and you put your heart and soul into it, they're not going to pull the rug out from under you and, and lay you off the minute there's a 2% downturn in the economy and really is something different, something quite powerful. And you can feel it when you go in there. Uh, you, you said earlier, Bill, um, we live in a winner take all world these days. And in part, that's a function of what has, uh, of, you know, the world of innovation in Silicon Valley on the one coast and Wall Street, you didn't yep. say this on the other. Uh, what is your sense of where we are now as as a nation in terms of the receptivity to to this idea it's it seems to me that so many people are really uh hungry uh, especially young people and we've studied millennials and uh compared them to generations past here and some research that we've done uh at the Wharton school and of course many other people have observed that young people uh are uh i mean it's their it's their you know, defining um, differentium of this generation is the quest for meaning and social impact and having a sense that work is more than just a challenge, more than just a paycheck, but as you say, a cause. So I remain hopeful about this, but I wonder, 
Like, what are you encountering as you share your ideas and insights? Are, are how are people responding to this notion of well, I, I uh, think, work as a cause? Yeah, people get very. It's a hard thing to generalize about. I think most people, on a good day, get excited about it, feel and feel like, yeah, of course, that's exactly how things should work. I think there are two big problems. Number one, and it's kind of right, brother. We need more people begin to take this more seriously and more importantly mm-hmm. leaders begin to act in this direction if they can see actual models and case studies of mm-hmm. where these kinds of ideas actually work which is why i think something like lincoln electric is so important some of the other organizations i, I write about people have to see it to believe it kind of deal but the the other thing is organizations <laughs> and leaders simply have to be willing to somehow overcome the, the sort of reductionist, short-term, kind of relentless, you know, life is defined by an Excel spreadsheet and the most narrow metrics possible, which is unfortunately how... So, I mean, here we are talking about this, all this stuff, and yet, you know, last week, Wells Fargo fires 5,300 rank-and-file employees for, to me, the just unpardonable, unthinkable, sort of creating millions of phony accounts yeah. of bank accounts and mm. credit cards talk about cynical never knew that i mean mm-hmm. to me, how can this possibly mm-hmm. happen it's an act so egregious so mm-hmm. beyond the pale and and so it, it is this kind of bifurcated world where on the one hand i'm out here in all these organizations where people are supercharged up and they feel like we're 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 mm-hmm. you know doing work that's going to change our field for the better and people are sharing in the wealth that's being created and feeling like they've got a voice in the future of the company. And then you pick up the Wall Street Journal and you've got Volkswagen putting in, you know, software to, 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 to fool its own customers, let alone the regulators, about how much pollution the cars are spewing. Sure, this thousands of people doing just, you know, unspeakable things at Wells Fargo. It's like, but that is, it's, you know, we kind of live in the in a world where you're just always hoping out, hoping that over the long term, mm-hmm. the good eventually crowds out. Well, you're the you're bad. helping to do that by bringing to light some of the uh, some of the good that's that's out there. Let me ask uh, a, a question that um, I'm not sure you w- was a main focus, but sure. you probably did pick up ideas about this in your research, and that is. The relationship between uh, work and, and the rest of life is yeah. our main focus here. And so I wonder what you discovered in in your in-depth studies of these um, these 15 companies about that issue. In particular, how uh, family life plays into the success of uh, the companies that you studied uh, with respect to defining what success is, for example. And... Um, you know, whether what you're doing is really worth doing. Sure. So, I mean, this to me, I certainly write about it in the book. It goes back, I think, to the earliest days at Fast Company. I'm, I'm in my office here, and I'm looking at the cover of the very first issue of uh, Fast Company. And the, the it was kind of this manifesto we wrote, and the, the first line is, work is personal. And I think mm-hmm. in all the organizations I write about, there is a sense that if, what the organization is both asking of you and giving you an opportunity to do is to invest emotionally, psychologically, in a deeply personal way in the work the organization is doing and the impact 
the company is trying to have. And this doesn't have to be highfalutin stuff, by the way. One of my favorite case studies in the book is a, a, a fast food chain in Tennessee called Pal Sudden mm-hmm. Service, which has become this incredible cult brand in its markets because of its really unique approach to making burgers and fries and milkshakes. So, I mean, it's not like we're, you know, we're, we're doing this, this cosmic work here. But mm-hmm. if you go to see those people or, or many of the others I write about, there is a sense that, boy, you wear that affiliation hmm. on your sleeve. Mm-hmm. But if you want people to invest that way, then, I mean, oftentimes it doesn't, it's not much more complicated than saying, therefore, we will treat you as adults and give you the flexibility you mm-hmm. need and understand if you're going to be spending lots of time when you're at home, you know, processing what's, you know, new ideas for work and so on, then we've got to be able as organizations to accommodate your full life as a, uh, a parent, as a member of a church, as someone with children in the school system, someone who wants to be a good neighbor. And so life is not defined by rules and regulations and hours in the office and all that kind of stuff. It's, I, I think, defined by a richer and more nuanced sense that if do you want people to say to themselves, I don't have to put my values on the shelf and I don't have to come in the mm-hmm. office. I get to be the same person I am at home or at work. Well, that means you've got to think about the the design of work in ways that accommodate all of our interests and priorities and, and needs mm-hmm. as, as fully developed people. So, and, so know, what's the best example of that from uh, the set of companies that you studied for Simply Brilliant? Well, I mean, it, again, let's go to something as, as, I think, ordinary, if you will, as, uh, as PALS, where, I mean, the, the deal with PALS is they are the fastest fast food on the planet. So you, you, you pull, so they have drive through restaurants. You pull up, they'll take your order within 18 seconds. You pull around to the other side of the restaurant. You wait for a second. They hand you the bag. You will not sit for more than 12 seconds hmm. in your car. And they, they always get, you would think, well, okay, that's fine. They're going to give it to you fast, but you know, you're not going to get half the stuff you ordered. They, they make a mistake once every 3,600 orders, which is about as close to perfection as you can get. And so they were the first restaurant of any kind to win the Ma- Malcolm Baldridge quality orders like FedEx. And this is because of their families or the, and the flexibility that they well, have? Because, because part of the deal is once you sign up mm-hmm. with them, you sign up for two things. One, you become a lifelong learner. And this is a company with a mm. 21 title master book list. And they're just a very weirdly intellectual approach to this. At the same time, all their systems, and all that, there's tremendous flexibility in terms of the hours you can Work your capacity to have mm. uh, time off. It's not, I, I wouldn't expect I would, when they're expecting rigidity and and you know hierarchy and structures. And it's not that at all. It's like if we can allow a, a, a group of people to really master their jobs, master the kind of way we're going to compete. Then using software and, and smart sort of techniques and so on, we can allow people to do the work at times that make the most sense for them, let people mm-hmm. take time off in the middle of the day to go to a kid's baseball game, whatever the case may be. And so it is this combination of just incredibly precise outcomes, but with real flexibility in terms mm-hmm. of how the work Well, and giving people right. responsibility. Bill, we only have a couple minutes yep. here, and we really haven't talked very much about Springsteen, and we have to. Ah. So, so tell me, uh, as, as I look at your book, I see in it, 
uh, so many of the things that Springsteen has made him so successful. So I'd love to get your take on that. I, I know he's not one of the case studies in your book, as he was in mine. I, which, I'm well aware which, of Which you that. generously endorsed. How do you see Bruce's life and work from the perspective of Simply Brilliant's principles? Well, um, I, first of all, anything I say, I'm going to say with great uh, modesty, because the idea of me analyzing uh, the career of Bruce Springsteen is a little daunting. Today is his... Uh, book release day, as you know, and they had 2,500 people in uh, Freehold, New Jersey at the Barnes and mm-hmm. Noble. Sadly, I don't think you or I get uh, quite that many people at our book signings, but we can we can hope, I suppose. Uh, first thing I do think is this, you know, you want to think mi- missionary versus mercenary. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do, if you look at, like, the substance of what he's done for the last 40-plus years, I mean, I, I really do think anybody who invests as much as you and I do in his work knows that there is a core set of uh, issues, themes, mm-hmm. life challenges that he's always thinking about, writing about, talking about. And then in some sense, they are very personal and emotional, and they kind of have to do with this kind of gap between sort of the American dream and how we idolize what goes on in the country and the American reality, which oftentimes doesn't mm-hmm. live up to that, either socially or or personally. And so there's this, this you know, songs are very different, everything else, but there is this very consistent set of themes he's been wrestling with for for 40 years. So there is a commitment to that kind of a cause, if you will, an mm-hmm. intellectual cause almost. I think keeps the music, you know, more than just fun songs to dance to or something. There's It's stuff you can really wrestle with and turn over in your own head. And then the second thing is just the sheer energy and exuberance of, you know, you and I know the live performances and so on, and every I've been to 112 shows now, and every show there's something that happens I wasn't expecting, some, you know, absurd excess of the, whether it's, you know, the, this last batch of shows that went on for more than four hours, or one mm-hmm. particular song that extends to a ridiculous length, or, I mean, there's always something that you weren't bargaining for, and so that just, that commitment to being in the moment and making that event for whether it's, you know, 15,000 people in a basketball arena or 60,000 people um, at, at MetLife Stadium or the link in Philadelphia, sort of feeling that, you know, that was really an extraordinary kind of thing. And so, um, you know, I, again, I mean this in the most modest way, but, you know, when I go to, I think about, you know, whether it's my speaking or my writing or whatever, mm-hmm. I'm looking at him as something, can I take a little insight here, a little lesson there that helps me be a little bit better at what I do based on both the substance of what he's been offering for 40 years and the performance ethos he brings to bear um, in terms of whatever he does. Well, and the, and the questions that you challenge your readers with in the epilogue, what's your story? Uh, you, you could read, and they're extremely helpful, and they really do kind of rivet your attention to to what matters, to stand apart, to be successful, and to feel good about yourself, and well, to represent yourself well to your family, to your community as a person of integrity. Yeah. I think these, uh, uh, you know, with respect to the case of Bruce Springsteen, uh, it's clear that the answers are a resounding yes to every single one of these seven questions. Uh, and uh, I, I, I would love to have you back, Bill, where we just talk about Bruce <laughs> and, and and all the many lessons of leadership uh, and uh and, and living in our modern world that uh, that he can teach us. But for now, I'm afraid 
we have to call this conversation to a halt. Um, I have been speaking with Bill Taylor, who is the co-founder and founding editor of Fast Company magazine. He's the author of the wonderful new book, Simply Brilliant, How Great Organizations Do Ordinary Things in Extraordinary Ways. I highly recommend this book. You can also check out his website, which is williamctaylor.com. That's William C. Taylor, one word. And there's a very nice uh, and evocative quiz there that you can take to help you kind of get into this material and tells you what kind of leader you are. You can also follow his wise and witty commentary on Twitter, as I certainly do. He's at William C. Taylor. Bill, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, my goodness. It was really fun. Thanks so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Bill Taylor, the co-founder and editor of Fast Company magazine and author of a number of significant books on leadership and change. So if you're part of a traditional kind of company and you got an idea about how to make it more innovative from listening to this dialogue just now, well, I would love to hear about it, especially, but not only, but especially if you plan to act on that idea in some way. You know, you don't have to turn your whole world around to try something that's a move toward greater innovation, greater impact. What's holding you back from taking such a small step? Why not take it? If you do, or if you're thinking about it, I'd love to hear what you are thinking and what you discover by taking a move forward. So you can write to me. Just tweet at Stu Friedman or email me at friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. Now, let me just close by uh, asking you to take two seconds. I would really appreciate if you just took a couple of seconds to rate and review this podcast, Work and Life with Stu Friedman, on iTunes or wherever you access this podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.